Hi, I'm Pastor James, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church in Hillsborough, Oregon. Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. Our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so each weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please visit our website at www.isunrise.com, I-S-O-N-R-I-S-E.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you, grow along the journey of life with others, develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost, and then learn how to lead other people to know Jesus Christ. Now, on to our weekend message. Well, we do continue to work through the book of Matthew, and today we're in, in, uh, in a great story, a great passage. But as I was thinking about it, I was thinking about um, how we perceive time, how as human beings we think about time. I, I, I'm a self-professed uh, uh, sci-fi geek. I love science fiction. I love the thoughts about time travel. I was thinking about this, and I, it probably started with H.G. Wells. He probably ruined my life with the time machine. I read that as a kid. And then I saw the movie, the old 1960. Have you guys seen that, Rod Taylor? That is a cool movie. Uh, and I was fascinated by that, watched all the time. And then a kind of a, a silly one, but it was cute. It was the Bing Crosby, a Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. Anybody see that? Okay, only a couple of us geeks, okay? But that's okay, because we have a connection, right? And uh, and it was fun. And, and I, I like time travel movies. I've corrupted my three boys with time Time travel movies. We enjoy those kind of things. Some of them they've seen, some they haven't seen. Uh, someone uh, it, somewhere in time it was a phenomenal movie. I loved in the eighties. Christopher Reeve. I showed it to my wife, and it was just sappy. It didn't work. Um, but one that does work is Deja Vu, Denzel Washington. If you guys seen that, that is a killer time machine movie. I love that. Uh, or my wife, one of our favorites is Midnight in Paris with Owen Wilson. Have you seen that? That is, that's a cute movie. It's not like a chick flicker necessarily, but it's a cool movie about history and Paris. We enjoy that one. Uh, one I've seen a number of times, uh, Edge of Tomorrow. You've seen that with Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. Really fascinating story. He dies every day and keeps coming back. That's painful. Uh, or, or one that is almost as painful is The Terminator, right? Arnold. My boys haven't seen that yet, but I'll be back. And I'll show you that one. And I just have to edit it a little bit. Um, I end up editing movies at home on my computer so we can see them. Back to the Future, the whole trilogy. I mean, who doesn't want a DeLorean after that? That's a great one. Uh, Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd. Uh, one that my wife didn't know was a time travel movie. It's Peggy Sue Got Married. Remember that one? Nicolas Cage. That was great. Kathleen Turner. And it was filmed in Petaluma, just up the road from where I used to work at a gas station. So we'd see all the production trucks up there. And... And um, it, was, it was a lot of fun. One that's a little, okay, one that's a lot weird. How many of you have seen and like Donnie Darko? Okay, all right. There we go. You're loud and proud, baby. Okay, all right. It's kind of weird. You have to see it like 27 times to finally get it, but it's okay. Uh, the butterfly effect, Aston Kutcher, that's a kind of a weird one. It, is, it had some really cool things going on. One I really enjoyed was Looper with Bruce Willis and wannabe Bruce Willis. Uh, that was really cool. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. That was kind of fun. Uh, I fell in love with Brad Pitt because of this movie, 12 Monkeys. Who likes that? Bruce Willis, Brad Pitt. That is, he was like the perfect freak. I was totally convinced he was insane. Who knows? Maybe he is. I don't know. Uh, we've all seen Groundhog Day, right? 
Bill Murray, that's a classic, okay? All right, it's a good one. And I finally decided, it was a debate, but I finally decided I will show my boys, and they watched Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, okay? A little George Carlin in there, right? Okay, Keanu Reeves. And it's silly, but it's fun, all right? Uh, Now, not a movie, but a TV show that my boys and I, we watch a lot is The Time Lord himself. Who is it? Doctor Who. And we could debate, but I'm okay with David Tennant or Matt Smith, but we're fine on either of those. Well, when you think about time, I've talked to my boys about this, and you know, the concept of time travel, wouldn't it be fascinating to go forward in time, or to go back in time, to see events as they really were, or to see them as they will be? But the problem is, we don't have that ability, no matter what science fiction dreams up, we're stuck in our time. It is our time. And the way time works is is a bit of a mystery to us because uh, we don't understand when we read passages in the Bible that describe God being outside of our time. We are firmly embedded in time, and yet God doesn't have those restrictions. So the best way it's ever been explained to me was a professor in college. Uh, Dr. Elliot said it this way, if you want to think about time, our perspective versus God's, Think about it in the form of a parade. So imagine we're going to a parade. We're going to go to the Hillsborough Parade, uh, 4th of July. We're going to go down to the Rose Parade. Or we're going to go to a big, you know, massive, you know, Macy's Day Parade at Thanksgiving. We position ourselves on a part of the street, on the sidewalk, on the corner. And we get a chair. We stand there. We have our family, friends. But everybody's pressing in. And because the crowd is pressing in, you get this narrow viewpoint of time, right? You get this narrow viewpoint of the parade. And you probably have some kind of, uh, you know, listing of the, the elements, the, the, the musicians, the bands, the parade floats, things like that going on. And so you know what's going to happen, but what you see is what's passing in front of you at that time. And so you can anticipate the parade as it moves in front of you. You can see what's happening right there in front of you. And then as it moves on, you can't see that anymore because of the crowd. And so that is, is, is beyond you. It's, it's already happened. You know there are some things that are going to show up, but they're not in your field of view right now. And so that is how we perceive time. It's something that's moving. We only catch what's happening now. What has already gone on is passed to us. We can remember that. We can anticipate through the Bible some prophecies what will be happening. And when it shows up, it's now for us. That's how we see time. We're stuck with only our viewpoint. But God, on the other hand... He is not standing beside us, stuck with that viewpoint. He is up in a blimp, in a helicopter, and it's all happening at the same time. He sees everything as one big now. It's all happening at once. And so, therefore, God can step into our time wherever he wants to. He knows the past, he knows the present, he knows the future as a firm reality. There's no question, he already knows what it's going to look like. And when we think about the Bible, when it describes some of these events, it's kind of confusing. And we think about those events in the Bible, and, and it's mankind's attempt to explain sometimes the very unexplainable Think about this. Even the book of Revelation, I just kind of thought about this the other day. I thought, even Revelation, what does Revelation talk about? It talks about some pretty weird things, right? Weird from our perspective. Here you have a person, John, one of the original disciples, having visions about the future. And he writes about them with as much clarity as he can write. 
but they don't sound very clear to us because he's writing about a beast. It's like, what is a beast? You know, is it a friendly beast? You know, is it a, is it, what kind of beast is it? Is it a Harry Potter beast? Is it a, you know, is it something like that? Uh, what is the beast? Uh, there's an antichrist, an antichrist. There is a person that rises up that stands against Christ. And we try to make sense of these things. I've I've only been alive for a few years, but I know that people have tried to peg certain people as parts of the book of Revelation. Uh, In my lifetime, you know... Jimmy Carter was supposed to be the uh, the Antichrist, okay? He, he, maybe he was a president, but he wasn't the Antichrist, all right? Uh, and then some people thought Ronald Reagan, because what? He was shot and came back, right? Well, that sounds like revelation right there. But then he was a Republican, so how could he be, right? Okay, sorry. Um, and, and then definitely, I remember this, Ross Perot... Ross, you're thinking, who's that guy? Well, he attempted to become the president, didn't make it very far... Uh, but, but he was shorter. And so people said, and I saw books come out. He's the little horn of revelation who will become the antichrist. And then of course the Pope's always the antichrist, you know, you know, how could he not be the antichrist and this and that. And people come up with these weird, bizarre things and they demean people by saying that, uh, nobody said Barack Obama was the antichrist, although we're not sure about this current president, but you know, it's like, who knows? We might say this or that, but how do we describe these things in ways that are current? to us because then you read in the bible the book of revelation the number 666 man's number the mark of the beast what's that going to be what's that going to be i remember as a kid just brand new as a follower of christ people talking about it and it was it was social security checks the number 666 was going to be the prefix the next year now it's going to be the mark of the beast right or is it going to be credit cards is it going to be a tattoo Uh, south by southwest they have tattoos with with actual electronics in them Okay, so maybe that's what it's going to be, right? Something embedded. What is that going to be? It's the mark of the beast. And you're not going to be able to buy or sell without this mark. And then you read in Revelation, there are scrolls and there are seals and there are bowls. Like what is it, it literally are that what that is? Or is it a figurative litter? What is what's going on here? Was this the best attempt? The only way John could describe these things? I remember as a non-believer, uh, before I came to Christ in the mid-70s, there was this rash of books about the end times. Pe- Christians were singing songs about it, wishing we'd all been ready. And there were movies about this, you know, and, and A Thief in the Night. And then books like uh, Salem Kerbin 666 and The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, you know. Those were things that were designed to scare you. And they were saying this was this and, and the stingers of the beasts that rise up, they're, they're helicopters. Okay, and you know the, the 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 demons that come out of the shaft of the abyss. You know, this, these are armies. How do we describe these things? How do we put the idea that the Bible describes the future into some tangible reality for us? How do we make sense of that? We read about a dragon, a dragon, that dragon of old. Speaking of Satan, why is he called a dragon? In Genesis, he's called a serpent. What, what, what's that picture there? And then you see some pretty specific visions. You see a, a great white throne and a person sitting on it. And that's God. But God's not a person. But there's a throne. Is it a real physical throne? Is that an image of a judgment? It's definitely a judgment. And all who have rejected Christ will stand before that throne and be judged. And then... Um, for me, the part that uh, is the most troubling of all the Bible, but it's as true as true could be, 
is that there'll be a lake of fire that all those who've rejected Christ, a, a place created for Satan, that serpent, that dragon, and his angels, those that fell with him, that he connived and convinced to go against God, designed for them, people who've rejected God will be thrown into. I, I, man, I, I mean, I don't like those images. Those are troubling images, but they're there, they're real, they're true. And they're there because God revealed truth. And it was written down in the Bible. And when you think about some of these things, you go, well, how is this going to be? When is this going to be? What, what are going to be the signs of this? And not a year goes by that somebody doesn't predict the end of the world, whether it's, you know, Harold Camping or Mayans or, you know, John Hagee or somebody like this come out saying, this is what God has told me. How do we know this is going to happen? What should we do in the meantime? And how do we prepare for it? Well, that's what Jesus is going to address today in his passage in Matthew 24. It's a long passage of scripture. We'll see most of it. We'll skip a few parts. You can read it yourself. But we're going to look at this basic outline that Jesus speaks about. Now, as we jump into it, if you turn to Matthew 24, verse 1, page 754 in your chair Bible, I want to bring you up to speed to, to where we are today. We've been in the book of Matthew. If you're with us, you know, as a newer person at sunrise, um, you've missed a lot. We've been looking at the birth of Jesus, the early life of Jesus, the early ministry of Jesus with John the Baptist. We've seen a lot of amazing things, healings and teaching and preaching, a lot of ministry that Jesus has done, a lot of loving outsiders, a lot of rejection by the inside. The religious people, the irreligious people love him. The religious people shun him and they judge him. And it finally reaches the fever pitch at the last week of his life. After three, three and a half years of ministry, Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem and it's called the Passion Week, the last week. And I heard a theologian uh, a number of years ago, Ben Witherington III, he said it this way. He said, if you look at the Gospels, the reason the, re the writers of the good news, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote, was to get to this last week. Because that's the heart of the message right there. That Jesus would be rejected, that he would die on a cross, that he'd be resurrected. That's the message. Everything else is prologue. Well, we've been over a year in prologue, so it's, we're getting there, right? And so this is what we see. Here's a little map uh, from one of uh, the study Bibles that I've got. It shows the city of Jerusalem as a, you know artist uh, rendition here, a depiction of what it would have been like. If you go to Jerusalem now, you go to the old city. The old city is pretty much this with some extra areas. But this is about the space of it. If you go to the Old Testament, I'm reading in first Samuel right now and David just killed Goliath. I saw that this morning in my Bible. It's exciting. This is the city of David, this little tiny sliver. This is the city of David. Then later Solomon builds a temple, his son up on this mountain. It's destroyed by the Babylonians, rebuilt. Uh, when a decree happens from Xerxes 444 BC, which starts a clock, we'll see it in a minute. And all of a sudden this temple's rebuilt. Then Herod, the great comes on the scene and establishes it as the largest temple in the world to one God. Uh, the Greeks had a lot of larger temples, but they were to many gods. This is the largest temple temple in the world to just one God. 
And people around the world saw it, saw it and marveled at it. And so that's the focus and the focal point of the city of Jerusalem. So on Sunday, we call it Palm Sunday. Jesus rides in, triumphal entry. Uh, this first day of the week, he comes in riding on a donkey, fulfilling the ancient prophecy of Zechariah to a T. People welcome him in. They shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Everybody's, you know, excited about him coming. He comes into the temple uh, on Sunday. And on Monday, he cleans and clears the temple out. Because the religious leaders, they had used it for buying and selling, making money, which should have been done outside and now is being done inside the temple, which is keeping the outsiders out, keeping the Gentiles away from worshiping God and freedom to know God. And so Jesus clears the temple. And then on Tuesday in the temple area, he spends the whole day back and forth arguing with the religious leaders. They pose question after question to him. And we've seen that for weeks and weeks on end. The Herodians, the followers of Herod, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. Last week, we saw finally Jesus blast the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the experts of God's word. And he says they're hypocrites because they've got the right teaching. They just don't do it. And so we saw that. And today we're going to see in chapter 24, Jesus leave the temple. He leaves the temple and he goes out, crosses the Kidron Valley. You could still do that today. Walks up to the Mount of Olives. It's just a short hike. And they sit there on the Mount of Olives and they overlook this beautiful, gleaming city of God. As the sun begins to go down, they're there. And the questions about the end, the end times come up. So let's jump into this. So this is what we see in our text, starting in verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple grounds, this beautiful, majestic building, this marvelous structure that was the center focus piece of all things for the Jews, where actually they were celebrating the Passover, or preparing for it at least, and tens of thousands, if not 80 to 100,000 people from around the world had come together as they're leaving the temple grounds. Jesus' disciples pointed out to him the various temple buildings. They were in awe of this building. If you've ever been to Jerusalem and all we have left is that western wall and those stones placed there by Herod that had been buried for 2,000 years, that had been dug up. It's, it's a marvelous thing to think this is where the very altar, the place of God, the place where Jesus would have walked and talked with his disciples. They respond, do you see all these buildings? Jesus says, I tell you the truth, they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. You're impressed by this structure, but I'm telling you, it's going to be dismantled. We know that's truth because 40 years later, 38 years later, in AD 70, the Romans come in and they completely obliterate the Jewish state. They remove the Jews from the land. They burn the cities. They burn Jerusalem. They burn the temple. I mean, look at this, this beautiful building here. This is a model from uh, what was originally the Holy Land Hotel in Jerusalem. Now it's at the uh, Hebrew Museum there in Jerusalem. It's like a city block of the whole city rebuilt up in a scale. And it, it, the stones... You can go today and all you would see as you stand there, the very corners of the stones are massive, 10 feet, 80 feet long, amazing, put there, marvelously crafted, put in place. Josephus tells us, the historian, in absolute silence as everything was just laid there, put in place. And there's gold everywhere in the temple, in the altar area. 
Gold in the doors, gold in the walls, gold, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, everywhere there's gold. And, and historian Josephus tells us that because this is made of limestone, the Romans poured water all over it as it saturated with the water. They heated and they burned it and that caused the stones to literally explode and break apart. And Josephus declares that you could hear it from what we would consider miles away, the temple exploding because God's people had rejected God's son, God's servant, God's king, God's Messiah. And judgment was coming upon them because of that. And Josephus tells that the gold, as it burned and melted, it ran into the cracks between the stones. And as it was drying and things were cooling, the Roman soldiers were tearing stone upon stone apart to get to the gold. So Jesus was right. Prophetically, he was absolutely right. Not one stone would be left unturned. You could go there today and see pile upon pile of stones. I actually have, it's kind of an interesting thing, I, I don't know how I got it out of the country, but up on the top, I asked permission, um, up on the top, uh, you know, it, it's Palestinian Arab and, uh, they had been excavating a lot and dumping it. And, uh, people are actually sifting through those materials. And I picked up a piece of limestone that had been unearthed and I have it on my shelf at home. Just a little piece of limestone from that temple at the time of Herod the great. And you think that's all that's left little pieces of this great building that designed to worship God because the people had rejected the very God they thought they were worshiping when he showed up in human form. Jesus, it says later, sat on the Mount of Olives. His disciples came to him privately. And this was the, this was the question. Tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? That's a good question. Jewish people had this Understanding, just like we do, they phrase it a little differently. They have this present age and the age to come, this world and the world to come, this life and the life to come. And there was a, a line delineating, separating. We live on this side. We live in this age. It's imperfect. It's broken. There's sinfulness. There's corruption. There's injustice. We live in a world that's fallen, the Bible describes, because of sinfulness. It's in our hearts, it's in our lives. And so we live in an in a imperfect world, but there's coming a day, the Bible declares, and the Jewish people would look forward to the world to come, the age to come. We look forward to that. We may call it heaven, uh, relationship with God in the eternity. The Bible in Revelation describes it as a new heaven and a new earth with God dwelling on the earth with us in his presence. So, but that's not here yet. And so the, the question for the Jewish mind, even our own mind is, when is that going to come? When do we cross that line? When do we get to the future? The future becomes present reality for us. We're longing for the day when all the wrongs are righted, when everything is set back in place. Jesus, when is that going to come? When will you finally come and set up your kingdom would be the way they would think about it and phrase it in their mind. When will all this happen? Are there any ways we could know about this? Can we anticipate it? And this is what Jesus says. And starting in verses four to eight, he begins to describe what Jeremiah refers to as Jacob's trouble. Um, We see in Revelation a tribulation. Now, there's a fascinating series of texts in Daniel, and we could do like weeks and weeks of prophetic conferences and still not get it all right. Um, But we could entertain ourselves, that's for sure. Um, And we could have huge charts. But the fact is, Daniel describes uh, this thing called 77s. 
70 periods of time. And these periods of time he calls weeks or they're, they're, they're most likely years. And so 69 of them happen and there's one that's left. And, and from the day Xerxes decreed in 444 BC, the, the rebuilding of the temple, which is prophetic in Jeremiah, it, the clock ticks and it comes until Jesus walks into the city, goes into the city on Palm Sunday. Exactly the fulfillment of 69 of those weeks. And then there's a pause and Daniel describes this last week. We believe that it's the church age when the Jewish people, although they've rejected him now, they will receive him later. And in the meantime, the church is established. It's, it's birthed. It's, it's given the message, the ministry of reconciliation. And we go out and live that. But this last week is still unaccounted for. We're waiting for it called Jacob's trouble. It's predominantly a, a, a Jewish It's a Jewish um, understanding of Jesus coming back. The church has already been, we believe, taken up at that point to be with with Christ, celebrating a a, a wedding banquet is how Revelation describes it. And yet there's seven years of great tribulation. Well, three and a half years of tribulation and the last one, great, great tribulation. And there are 144,000 Jews that go out and witness about the Savior Jesus and the, the world hears about it. And so this is the description of the first part of this. Jesus says, don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name claiming I'm the Messiah. A lot of people have done that. They're false messiahs. They will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. We hear about that all the time, don't we? Wars and rumors of wars. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. We know that, right? We've experienced that. There were a lot of people at the end of the 18th, uh, 1800s, early 1900s, and the 20th century there. They said, hey, the world's just getting better all the time. It's going to be so great. There was this optimism, and then the war to end all wars, which wasn't because then there was another one. And that's all we've known. War after war, nation fighting against nation. There'll be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world. I mean, really? There are famines everywhere. We see famines. Uh, there's another famine going on in Africa. In our age right now, earthquakes, we hear about earthquakes all the time, not just in Haiti or in uh, Bangladesh. We, we, you know, we hear about earthquakes destroying tens of thousands of people. This is commonplace for us today. But all this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. So this sets up the beginning of this. Uh, Jesus describes it in some verses. Daniel talks about it, a, a cataclysmic event in the middle part where the temple, the what he calls the, the, the desecration, the abomination happens when the temple is rebuilt and now it's desecrated. And then literally all hell begins to break loose on the earth as God sends judgment after judgment. And a third of the rivers and the ocean turn to blood and a third of the population dies and a third of the stars. I mean, it's just unbelievable the pain when the demons are released from the abyss, the shaft of the abyss, Tartarus, uh, Jude calls it, and they torment. It's, it's, it's coming to the end. Nations rise up together under this leadership of an antichrist, a false prophet, and they come up and they believe, they believe that they could actually attack God himself. And so it gets into the second part of the tribulation down in verse nine. It says, then you'll be arrested, 
persecuted and killed. You'll be hated all over the world because you're my followers. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere and the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And look at this. The good news, the gospel, the message of Jesus about the kingdom will be preached throughout the entire world so that all nations will hear it and then the end will come. Revelation has so many pictures about this, about these messengers going out preaching the message of Jesus, about two witnesses coming and the whole world seeing them as they're sharing this message. They're killed and then they're resurrected. So pretty phenomenal events that go on. And this is the second half of the Great Tribulation. And so the question is, what are the signs? What, how do we know this is going to happen? Now, we believe, uh, as we read through the Bible and assemble the pieces together, that we won't be here at that time. We'll be up in a relationship up in, in, in heaven, up with God. Uh, but, but this will be happening for those who have res, you know, not responded to Christ, rejected him. And this will be going on. Well, as you get down to verse 27, it says, For as the lightning flashes in the east... And shines to the west, so it will be when the Son of Man comes. This is not what we would call a rapture or, you know, a appearing of Christ as in the second coming. This is, you know, a, a, I mean, this is the second coming. I mean, when he actually literally comes down, physically touches back down on the Mount of Olives. Just as the gathering of vultures shows there is a carcass nearby. So these signs indicate that the end is near. Immediately after the anguish of these days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will give no light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers and the heavens will be shaken. You know, everybody, believer or not, creationist, evolutionist, it doesn't matter. Everybody believes that one day it's all going to die out. I don't know whether you believe in 100 years, 1,000 years, or a billion years. Everything's going to die. Everything's going to end. And the Bible describes that God's going to bring that end about as a, as a form of judgment. And everything will cease as we know it. All of what God has made, he will take and begin to tear apart. Ultimately recreate and we'll have a brand new. Like it was originally. But in the meantime, it's getting dark. It's getting, it's getting scary. Jesus goes on to describe this. And then at last, the, the sign that the Son of Man, Jesus himself, is coming will appear in the heavens. And there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with the mighty blast of a trumpet. And they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. And so, as we think about this darkest moment in, in heaven, the reality is whenever that line is crossed and that age to come begins, that is, is a delineator between options we have now and decisions that have already been established choices we have now and we don't have those choices anymore because it's time and time is now ending and what we have done in this present age has consequences in the world to come in the age to come and we're not just physical beings we're spiritual beings and as spiritual beings, we have a, a, a spiritual eternity ahead of ourselves. And the Bible is very clear. We all live forever somewhere. We either live in a relationship with God in the future, as Revelation describes it at the end, heaven on earth. Or we live, as Revelation continues to describe, outside of that in utter darkness, 
and judgment. Now, it's interesting. I was doing some reading in the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages, Jewish rabbis continued to address this issue. This is interesting. Uh, Some midrash, some interpretation of the end times. This from the Middle Ages, from rabbinic writings. Elijah of blessed memory will come and give good tidings to Israel. It's fascinating because of the, the we call the Old Testament, the Bible it describes Elijah coming before the Messiah, which if you study uh, the Gospels, that's John showing up and Jesus clearly saying he was the Elijah to come. They still believe Elijah has to come first. It says Messiah ben David, the son of David, Elijah Zerubbabel, the one who established the rebuilding of that temple. Peace be upon him will ascend the Mount of Olives. It's such an important important place for Jesus, the Messiah, to come back. And Messiah will command Elijah to blow the shofar. A horn will be blown. Look at this. All will come to the Messiah from the four corners of the earth, from east and west, from north and south. The children of Israel will fly on the wings of eagles and come to the Messiah. That's what the Bible says is going to happen. But the Bible says the Messiah has already come first. And he was rejected and crucified. Hung on a cross just outside the city gates. And then he ascended to the Father. After appearing to the disciples, after being resurrected, but then he will come back again and come back to the Mount of Olives and this second coming will be the end. The line, it's drawn. It's, it's all going to happen. And then Jesus begins to talk about this and addresses this in verses 36 on. He says, however, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the son himself, only the father. So if anybody ever tells you, hey, I know when it's going to happen. It's a lie. I remember that. I wasn't even a follower of Christ and some friends. They said, we know it's going to be in alignment of the planets in 1980. And once all the planets aligned, you know, it was like, that didn't happen, right? Or it's going to be and this happens. 1984 it was supposed to happen. didn't happen. I mean, you just keep going on and on. And Harold Camping was wrong. And the Mayan calendar just ended. And that was all it did. Okay? They just ran out of stones, I guess. I don't know. But the fact is, nobody knows. So if anybody ever go, comes out and writes a book and says, I know, they don't know. They're, they're, they're false. They lie because Jesus himself said only the Father knows. He goes on, when the Son of Man returns, this is important, it will be like it was in Noah's day. Like in Noah's day. What was that? Jesus says, in those days, before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. Genesis chapter 6 and on. Remember that? Uh, God spoke to this guy Noah, and he went and built an ark, a boat. To save his family and anybody else, but everybody rejected it. He brought those animals in. It says people didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That's what it's going to be like when the Son of Man comes. In other words, people will just assume life as normal. People will deny any change. They will deny any message. And they will just have the false assumption that it was that way yesterday. It's that way today, so it's going to be that way tomorrow. And none of us know the day or the hour of Christ appearing, but I'll tell you this, none of us know the day or the hour when we die. And so there's no guarantee we're going to make it even tomorrow. I spoke to one of our ladies after first service, and she had talked about sharing the gospel with a friend, and the friend rejected it. And just just like that, one night, she didn't wake up the next morning, and she passed. And that's, you never, you're never guaranteed tomorrow, my friends. You're not even ever guaranteed this afternoon. And so the question is, what you do today, does it matter? Absolutely it matters. It matters for not just tomorrow, but every tomorrow after that for all eternity. 
Jesus gives an example. He says, two men will be working together in a field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding flour to the mill. One will be taken, the other left. So you too, he says, must keep watch. For you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Understand this. If a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night. No one's going to anticipate or know. You must also be ready all the time for the Son of Man will come when least expected. The return of Jesus will catch people off guard, even though they've been warned again and again and again. Even though they've heard the message, maybe they've seen movies about it. When it happens, no one will anticipate it. No one will know. It'll be like the days of Noah and judgment will come upon people like a flood. You and I live in a, in a nice age. We do. We have so many conveniences. We have so many things that make our life amazing. We live in a culture, we live in a country that's so blessed that, that most of us have so much more food than we could ever consume, so, much, so many more clothes than we could ever wear, right? Men, don't nudge your wives because you have so much more tools in your garage than you could ever use, right? Okay, we all have so much and we're not content or satisfied and we think that this accumulation of more is going to bring us more life and that's not what our life consists of. Not in the abundance of our possessions, but it's in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We uh, live, we breathe, we work, we play, we, we party, we enjoy life. Jesus said it's going to be just like that. Because the people of Noah's day thought, this guy's crazy. This old man's building a boat. And he's talking about rain. The guy's mad. Now he heard the voice of God and he responded. And he built this place of safety. In fact, Peter writes about this. It's so cool. And God did not spare the ancient world, except for Noah and the seven others in his family. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. So God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of ungodly people with a vast flood. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. The Genesis doesn't tell us that. It takes Peter later on to tell us that. That Noah, you could just imagine it this way. It's how I see it. In one hand has a hammer and he's building an ark. On the other hand, he has a Bible. He didn't have a Bible because there wasn't a Bible back then. But he has the words of scripture, the words of life, the words of God. And he's preaching about this message and he's calling people to repentance. And uh, with one hand, he builds this, this building, this, this, this structure of safety that anybody, anybody freely could have come into and be saved and be rescued. And on his other hand, he uses it to preach the message of righteousness and repentance And sadly, nobody said yes. And they all rejected it. And so the days of Noah will come. And so, are you you doing something to build this? We could call it this kingdom. Jesus calls it the church that he's building. Are you joining him? Are you sharing the message? Are are, are you doing this and, and establishing this strongly? And then are you going out and telling people about him? Because two people will be walking. And one will be gone. Two ladies will be working and one will be gone. And the one who's gone is the one who believed and has been taken up to be with Jesus. And so you have an opportunity. I have an opportunity. I've devoted my life to building this kingdom, to giving everything I have, to building the ark, as it were, if I'm Noah. I'm joining Noah in a process of doing something so that people can be rescued. And on the other hand, are are you sharing the message 
Are you, are you preaching righteousness? Are you talking about repentance? Are you warning people of the flood to come? Because it will come. If not in our day, in a day to come. It will come. We can trust Jesus' words. It will show up one day. But only those who come into the safety of Jesus will be saved. There will be a day, using the metaphor of Noah, when God himself shuts the door of the ark and the fates of everybody is sealed. And there will be no more entrance into the safety that God built to save. And all will be done. Which side are you on? Which side do you work? What do you, what do you do with your life? How do you, how do you spend your energy and your focus? What is the purpose of your life? I mean, everybody's going to be like, like the days of Noah, going to parties and banquets and weddings and working and, and, and just doing everything like normal because that's what we do, right? But if we devote all of our time to that, it'll just be gone in a moment when the flood sweeps through. What, what do you do with your time? What do you do with your focus? What do you do with your energy? Is it about building a place of safety for people to come into, which is a picture of Jesus and his salvation? Is it about preaching this message, communicating this message, sharing with as many people as possible this message of Jesus? Because you know, you know that one day they're going to be judged. You know that one day everybody's going to stand before Jesus. You know with certainty because Jesus has said it again and again. And Revelation confirms that one day everybody will stand before God and be held accountable. Have you warned people? Have you witnessed about this truth? Have you shared with anybody that their life matters today and will matter for all eternity? And that we as human beings are not just physical, we're spiritual and we all live forever somewhere. Have you warned people of eternal consequences, eternal judgment, eternal life? That we either are with him in eternity Revelation describes it as a place of beauty. We would call it heaven, but it's recreated earth and God is there and we're with him. It also describes, as you continue on in Revelation, a place of outer darkness, a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth for eternity because people have rejected him in their lifetime. Have you warned people about that? Because everybody's going somewhere. And you and I have an opportunity. We have an invitation To come to Jesus for salvation. And then to witness to everyone about this salvation. Or are we just like the people in Noah's day. Just going on with our life. Going on with our time. Hiding our heads in the sand basically. Knowing a flood is coming. Bow with me. Father God I pray that you would convict us first. Personally. Individually. Of the direction of our lives. Because that's the most important thing right now. Is that we know where we're going. What we're doing. We know if we've tried to save ourselves. Or if we've come to Jesus for salvation. Father God. I, I, just, I would be remiss if I just didn't remind all of us of this simple truth. You love us so much. You came not to condemn us. We're already condemned. You came to save us. And to offer Jesus to us. Our salvation. Our hope. Our freedom when we come to him. That we receive a repentance and a brand new life. Forgiveness of sins and a, a new direction, a new purpose. God, we can cry out to you even now. We can cry out and, and confess that you are God. Confess that you are Savior. Confess that you are Lord. That Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And we can believe this in our heart. And we will be saved, the Bible says.
And God, for those of us who've already done that, what are we spending our lives on? Are we just living like everybody else? Are we just going to see our days pass by? Or are we joining you in this great work of building a a thing of protection, this this church, this message, this ministry? Are we preaching the message of righteousness? Are we, we preaching the message of repentance? Are we telling everybody, are we warning them as the days go by of the reality that this life will end? And when it's over, it's over and our fates are sealed and the decision has been made. And all who reject Jesus, Father, will be rejected. You are a God of love, but you will not force us into a relationship. And yet if we say yes to you, you will invite us into your family. So God, may we be the kind of people who are passionate about you. And we live it out and flesh it out in our everyday lives, in our conversations, at work, at play. At home, we're talking about this message that Jesus has given us. We have seen the future and we know with certainty it will come. The question is, how will we live in the meantime? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.